Welcome to our Bible study for Glendale Baptist Church. Uh, today we're going to continue in our studies in the book of Revelation, and we'll pick up in chapter 17, and I want to divide it up. So in this session, we'll cover verses 1 through 6. That's Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come. I will show you the judgments of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth or on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting in a, on a scarlet uh, beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name, uh, written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now we'll pick up in our next session on the marveled greatly because that segues into the seventh verse and the things that follow. Now up to this point, uh, for the most part, the activity of Satan uh, has been linked. And when we say the activity of Satan, the activity of Satan in the world as codified in the bowls of wrath and as dealt with with the trumpets as well as the seals and in those in-between chapters. But, but primarily the activities of Satan have been identified with the beast and or the dragon and usually the dragon is identified itself as Satan. So the activity has been primarily through the beast, the false prophets, and the kings of the earth. But moving forward into these concluding chapters, primarily chapters 17 through 20 or, or 19, the um, attention will be given to the harlot, or depending on the translation that you're using, the whore of Babylon, or the great prostitute as it has it here in the ESV. So this, now what, what John is about to see in, this, uh, in these next few chapters is really a more detailed description of Satan's uh, influence in all areas of corporate human existence or human experience and it'll be primarily through uh, the, the activities of the beast in conjunction with uh, this prostitute or this woman who is called the whore of Babylon. We've talked about some of those, some of that imagery in the past. We'll deal with it a little more um, in a little more detail as we go along. So as we look at uh, this introduction, uh, this also, conti uh, this, this continues the the parallelism. Uh, what we've seen is, uh, and we've emphasized this, that the beast itself is manifest as an art of, well, sort of as, as the opposite, an imitation of the lamb in terms of the horns that he possesses, 
in terms of him being uh, having the appearance of being wounded, um, seeming as if he has died and then been brought back to life. So all of those are imitations of the lamb. Uh, but also what we're going to see with in this particular section, in keeping with that idea of imitation, just as the lamb has his bride, the, the relationship between the, the bride and the lamb, and the bride being the church or the people of God, is paralleled with the whore or the prostitute or the, the whore of Babylon is, is to the beast what the, the, the bride is to the lamb. The contrast is seen with the purity associated with the bride of the lamb versus the lascivious nature in which the, uh, or promiscuous nature that's, that's associated with uh, the bride or the, the woman associated with the beast. So there are seven observations that we want to make in these initial verses. The first thing is this. The fact that the angel show the angel who shows John this vision or this next cycle of visions is one of the seven angels who had one of uh, had the seven bowls of wrath in the previous chapter is an indication that what John is probably what he's about to see more than likely is an amplify uh, an amplifying of what he has seen in the previous cycle of visions, particularly in the sixth and seventh bowls. In, those, in the sixth and seventh bowls of wrath, what John sees is the wrath that is poured out on the beast. And so this next cycle of visions is not a new event, but it's emphasizing with greater detail the things that are already explained or just sort of touched on in the bowl in the the vision of the bowls of wrath so there is that that connection the angel that shows john this set of visions is one of the angels from the previous set of visions concerning the bowls of wrath and as we indicated more than likely since the theme is her judgment what he is seeing is more details concerning the judgment of the beast and those who are associated with him Secondly, the imagery of the great prostitute, as we indicated, the imagery of the great prostitute through whom the beast carries out his rebellion against God is, um, uh, or against God in the world, is an imitation of the lamb and his bride. So there's going to be a lot of uh, contrast here. Whereas the influence of the lamb as represented by uh, or as in conjunction with Christ throughout this period of, of history is one of being persecuted, one that is the, in essence, the, the, the ground and pillar of truth, one that holds to the integrity of the word of God and is protected by the lamb. We're going to see the opposite of that with this the, the, the prostitute. She will be at some point alienated by the beast. She will, instead of being uh, a, a messenger of truth, she's a messenger of, of abominations and blasphemies against God. So she doesn't give praise to God. She blasphemes him. Uh, she is, instead of, instead of uh, trusting, 
she, she stands in her own might and she influences in a negative way all of those who are not associated with the lamb. So the, the, the contrast is, is clear and, and very intentional throughout, uh, throughout uh, this series of visions. The third thing to note here is that in the opening verse, it says that the prostitute is seated on many waters, which is symbolic of a wide range of influence of her dominion or a wide reach of her dominion. Now, this is paralleled actually in verse 15 that kind of explains uh, what's meant here. In verse 15, it says of the beast or says of the woman, and the angel said to me, the waters that you see where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So in verse one, it says that the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. This can't be, the, 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 the importance of this can't be lost. In other words, the influence of the dragon, the beast, and the man manipulations of the, the harlot is far-reaching in terms of its influence. And we'll see this uh, especially when it shows the destruction of, 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 the, of, of the woman and all of the things that are associated with it. So this is not just some, uh, this is not just some fly-by-night opposition nor is it to be understood as intentional, intentionally codified or unified. It's diverse, but it's not necessarily intentionally aligned with all of these other sources with an intentional, with, with the same message. The whole point is what is represented by the beast through the harlot are things that allure the affections and devotions of the people of God away from God. And so it's not always intentional. It's not like a church where we know what we believe and we know what we hold in common, whether it's denominationally or in other ways that we stand uh, confessionally upon this truth. No, I, I really believe that um, the, 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 the individual parts of those who are associated with the beast with the false prophet and with the harlot themselves don't always recognize that they are in league with the same rebellion against God. Because as we've indicated in the past, some of the opposition is clearly religious. And so some people will hold to what they think is a right religious interpretation. Some of it is giving religious devotion to those things that are not, which we'll see in a moment. Uh, but in any event, I think you have any number of people that are persuaded by the, the uh, or persuaded by the false prophets to give undue allegiance to the whore of Babylon, not all for the same reasons. Everyone who is a, a member of the body of Christ is a member of the body of Christ because we recognize that he is he is Lord. We recognize that he has died for our sins. We recognize that God has raised him from the dead. So there's a common body of belief, even if we have differences in secondary areas, there is a common conviction. That's not so with the beast, and that's part of the reason she has such a wide influence. 
people are grasping and holding to different things that are connected to the same source of corruption. So the beast or this, this prostitute is seated on many waters because her influence is across, uh, across borders. Uh, we mentioned verse 15, where it says that it's, you know, she's, she's over many nations and languages and, and, and multitudes. So it's, it's wide ranging, widespread. And that, and what, one of the things hopefully we'll be able to delineate, uh, someone just asked me recently about, uh, does God judge nations today in the same way that he did in the Old Testament? And one of the things hopefully we'll be able to delineate is that all nations are, or no nation is a saved nation. There is no holy nation. The nation, the kingdom of God is established in the church. And so the warning for uh, throughout this passage or throughout uh, the book of Revelation is that even though God has given the state for a particular purpose, to not, don't see it as the kingdom, the, the manifestation of the kingdom of God. No nation state is the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God, as with the influence of the prostitute, extends to all nations. So again, you see that, that contrast and that imitation. The influence of the harlot is universal in the same way that Christ is building his church from people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. Now that, that brings us to a fourth thing. In verse two, we have the summary statement of what the prostitute, um, or excuse me, we have this, the summary statement that the prostitute or what she's done with the kings. That it, it says that the prostitute along with the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. So in conjunction with the king or along with the kings of the earth, she has committed sexual immorality. And while sexual, physical sexual immorality is a continuing and persistent feature of fallen humanity and in certain cultures and in certain places, uh, we see various uh, well, it's it's ramped up and and it's it's just out there, just you know, rampant sexual immorality, whether it's um, homosexuality or just all sorts of, of of perversions from what God has intended for sexual for human sexual behavior. Even though that is always going to be a persistent problem, it's been my contention as well as other uh, commentators on the Book of Revelation that when the Bible speaks of sexual immorality for the most part in the book of Revelation, as well as in, in certain other places in the New Testament, is used in the same way that the prophets in, that, in Israel used uh, a referenced idolatry. So it's not necessarily idolatry. Now, here's where we want to make a caveat. We do know, and Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians, and we see it probably being a problem in other portions or in some of the churches that that uh, that are addressed here in the book of Revelation, that there was a, a, a practice of temple prostitution. There was some sense of sexual immorality, very similar in the Old Testament 
to the sexual um, sexual orgies that were associated with various forms of Baal worship. So that could have been at play here, but more than likely what is being used or uh, the, the reference to sexual immorality here is a metaphor uh, for idolatry. And we see it, as I mentioned, in the Old Testament in particular in places like Ezekiel where the Lord uh, says that his people are committing fornication or harlotry or they're prostituting themselves and they play the harlot under every green tree. And he's not speaking of actual physical sexual immorality, but they're dallying with, with idols. So idols in, in all of the high places uh, and idolatry is a, a persistent problem with national Israel. Uh, up until the time of the Babylonian exile. So what is referenced here when it says that um, the whore of Babylon, this prostitute, along with the kings, uh, the kings of the earth, they have committed sexual immorality. The point of reference is not physical sexual immorality, but idolatry. This is of particular interest with the kings of the earth, as well as with, um, since Rome is the dominant world empire at the time of John's writing, it really does resonate with Rome because uh, under uh, the Caesar Augustus, they, they, there was the implementation, probably influenced by the Greeks, of what they call emperor worship, ascribing to the emperor um, attributes of divinity as if they were a god it's also uh, that's that's true of a lot of pagan cultures even in uh, ancient egypt the pharaoh was considered a god uh, maybe a lesser god than some of the other gods but nonetheless a god and so in the roman empire there was um, there was the emperor worship where the emperor was determined to be divine to whatever degree so certainly the idolatry would have included for, uh, for, for Rome, the Roman Empire, <clears throat> any sense that, uh, the Rome, uh, that the Roman Emperor was divine. And this was not just um, something that was held private. It was, it was announced to the citizens of Rome so that whatever else one did, one had to acknowledge the deity of, of, the, empire, or of the emperor. So it, it certainly resonates with Rome. But in addition to um, the emperor worship, I think kings or rulers are prone to various types of idolatry, whether it's power itself or what we would call statism, elevating the state to a divine level as if the state is, it's the kingdom of God. And that mistake to ascribe to any, any uh, nation state and to ascribe to any individual devotion and worship that is due unto God is idolatry. And so the kings of the earth, it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of natural that the first reference to her influence of immorality, referencing idolatry, begins with the kings, uh, the kings who are uh, the kings of the earth. And it's not just Rome. 
but certainly with Rome initially as as the dominant power at the time of the writing, you could see how these the, the connections can be made. But throughout uh, human history and even moving forward past the Roman Empire, the same thing has been seen with various rulers at various times, whether it's trying to deify the state, the state itself, or to deify the rulers. This is a, 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 continuing, um, a continuing temptation for those who govern. And the interesting thing, and, and this is the challenge, I think, for the people of God, the interesting thing is God has given us human government in his providence as an extension of his, his continuing goodness even to a world that is under the curse. And just like with anything else that God has given us in our fallen state, we always run the risk of deifying the thing that God has given as an extension of his, his power and of his goodness. Uh, as Paul says in Romans 1, we end up worshiping the, the creature created by God instead of worshiping the creator. Uh, we end up looking at the stars. Oh, yes, that is, you know, that not only is that evidence of a great and powerful God, but somehow we make those those celestial uh, entities, we make them God or ascribe to them uh, attributes or expect from them that which we should only expect from God. I love what uh, the early church father Origen said about the children of Israel with the uh, golden calf. He said that God told the children of Israel to take the gold or to ask of, gold, uh, of their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, silver and gold. But he didn't tell them to build an idol with it. And likewise, God does give us government. God does give us rulers. But we are not to idolize those rulers as if they are God. And just because God appoints and allows people to govern, that doesn't mean that he approves of them. It simply means that God, through general revelation or through providence, allows for the sake of community and to some degree um, safety as people live together in, in nations or cities or whatever, it, it, it minimizes because um, all that humans can do in human government is govern us externally by the law. And as Paul says in Revelation, that he gives the sword. And so they will use that sword in an equitable way or in a way that's not equitable. But God never tells us that we are to equate those who govern and those who rule as if they are deify or as if they are deity themselves. Uh, they can be wrong and we should call them when they are wrong, call, check them when they are wrong, but understand that God allows human government for the purpose of community and general, the general safety and well-being of those that, that live. Only in the church does he, um, does he not only protect the body, but he saves the soul. And all, the, all human government can do, because no human government is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. 
So all human government can do is protect to whatever degree a person's physical body and their personal possessions. That's all they can do. That's they, they can't save your soul. They are not uh, they, they are not one a one-to-one correlation or a manifestation of God's eternal kingdom. Every kingdom will fail. And this is what, um, as I've said before, we are not in Old Testament national Israel, no matter where we are. We are still in Babylon. We are the children of Israel in the wilderness. We are Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. We are Daniel and his friends in Babylon. We are not in an eternal kingdom. The church is the, the, the it is the embassy of the eternal kingdom. So the idolatry or the immorality that the prostitute being the animation of the will of the beast is to present itself as ultimate power and somehow divine. And for that, the kings of the earth will seek their identity and their fullness from this illusion that's presented by the prostitute. And so they commit this sexual immorality or this idolatry together, making more of themselves individually or corporately than they should. The fifth thing that we see is in verse, uh, or also in verse two, that the dwellers of the earth follow the lead of the kings. And this is the challenge for the people of God. How do we live in a world, in a, in a kingdom that is under the influence of the beast without compromise of our convictions and understand, and with the, the clarity that we are of the age to come? So how do we balance that? How do we live in a world that is temporal and under the judgment of God without compromising our identity and citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now notice again the distinction here. It doesn't say believers, the dwellers on the earth, as we've indicated before, the dwellers on, on the earth in the book of Revelation is not everyone who is in the earth, but it is those who are not in Christ. And we'll see that with, with the persecutions that are inflicted upon the church, uh, so it's not that the church has not been raptured away and now uh, the earth is under the influence of the devil or of this prostitute and the kings of the earth as they practice their idolatry. No, the truth is believers are here, but we are identified as our in, 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 uh, in terms of our union with Christ instead of being dwellers of the earth. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul, in Colossians 3, that our lives are hidden in Christ. So we are raised with him and we are interacting in the earth. But here's what, what um, and this is where the warning comes in, because the dwellers of the earth are full-blown. Full now, this is where we go back to something we mentioned a little while ago. Everyone who is buying into the idolatry associated with the prostitute, if that be the state, or the king, and in terms of temper, uh, emperor worship, 
they not, may not be in it for the same purposes. They don't recognize what they're doing, but they have believed the lie. And so the dwellers of the earth are guilty of various forms of idolatry, even if they don't have the same agenda as others like them who are holding to the same thing. Um, we've, we see that in various uprisings and different things, movements, that one group is in it for one reason and another group is in it for another reason. They think they have a common goal, but they're driven by different things. And, and so it is for those who have been blinded by the influences of this, uh, of this harlot as she's described. So the dwellers of the earth, just so here's what we see. The prostitute is guilty of sexual immorality and she is joined by the kings of the earth and the kings of the earth are joined by the dwellers of the earth. So that's, that's the correlation, that's the connection. Now, if you look in verses three and four, it says, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and 10 horns. Many would think that the seven heads would refer to the seven hills of Rome, even though we know the number seven in the Bible, and especially as it's used in Revelation, indicates completeness or fullness. But in any event, uh, it says that she had 10 or that the beast had 10 horns and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So again, look, look at the, the correlation here that on the one hand, we see this, this woman who is sitting on a scarlet beast. So here's that connection between the beast and the woman, which is an imitation of the lamb and the bride. The beast is the one that seems to be described as, as representing the power. So the, the beast is, 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 accomplishing his purposes through the woman. Now, let's go back for a moment, and it says a scarlet beast, a red beast, which is full of blasphemous names. So that which is contrary to true deity, but he's full of blasphemous names, and it has seven horns, and um, or seven heads, and ten horns. So the woman, notice how she's described. She's, she's described with all of these great features being decked out. And then it says, and in her hand, a cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. So there we have the beast and the woman together. That the beast or the woman is to the beast what the church is to, or the, the bride is to the lamb. But notice this. The woman is described um, as being alluring externally. That she has all of these external features that gives the indication of wealth and of elegance and of beauty. 
This is where the warning to the saints comes in. The idea that the woman is described in terms of, of her outward apparel and her outward appearance, but the end result is that she seduces the dwellers of the earth and she seduces the kings of the earth in causing them to participate in the abominations and the blasphemies that are associated with the beast. The warning for the church throughout this whole period is to not be deceived, to not be deceived by the outward appearance of things and to be grounded in enough truth to know when something that is presenting itself as being more than what it is. In other words, that we would find, and we've talked about this in, in other lessons, that we would find our ultimacy, not in the things of the world, not in the things that the state can give us, not in any of these passing things, but our ultimacy, the ultimacy of our purpose and our being is our being connected to the Lamb. And so the warning throughout, we saw that in the previous section where the, the warning to the church is that we would be woke, that we would be awakened to know the deceptions that are taking place around us. So the woman is described in, in all of these, these outward, with this outward appearance of wealth and power and prominence and elegance. She's got jewels, she's got gold, she's got all of these things. But what she speaks is contrary to the things of God. We also see in the final thing in verses 5 and 6, not only do we see uh, that the woman is outwardly attractive and appealing, but her agenda is, is it's contrary to her outward appearance. But notice in verses uh, 5 and 6, it says that, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of uh, the prostitutes, or mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Her true identity is the opposite of the lamb. Her true identity is the opposite of God and the things of God. And the point of the awakeness of God's people is that we would see her for what she is. She is an enemy to the souls of God's people. Now, one thing that we should point out, because what we're going to be seeing over these next few chapters is the interrelated areas of the influence of the, the harlot and the beast. And you'll see that it carries over, I mean, it's, it includes culture, it includes uh, economics or the, the economic stability, or um, I should say finance and, 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 and uh, different things and kingdoms and so forth. There is no Christian economy. There is no, you know, there is no Christian culture. I think the warning, and I want to mention it here because this is, this is showing how when we resist, when we resist not, you know, when we resist the ultimate allure of the harlot, that we would not ascribe 
uh, deity to her, then you will meet persecution at various levels. It's not going to be the same across the board with everyone who resists the beast. But but expect ex expect pushback. But what she is saying is not so much that there's a Christian economy, there's a Christian culture. The warning for the, the people of God, and we'll see it later in chapter 18 where it says come out of Babylon, doesn't mean that we don't interact in the marketplace and it doesn't mean that we don't go to the movies. What it means is that we don't seek ultimacy. We don't look at these means as being ends. So as Jesus says through the course of this earthly ministry, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. And what he's saying in that simple statement is that in the mind of God's people, we need to be able to clearly delineate between God and Caesar. Caesar is not God and God is not Caesar. So what is rightly Caesar's, give it to him. Oh, we, we are citizens of this, of this earthly kingdom. And so we should be able to obey the laws of the land that do not conflict with the laws of God. We are to recognize the hand of God's providence and sovereignty in human government and ruling, but that doesn't make them God. And because they are not God, it is possible that they may call from us a degree of devotion that puts us, that really puts us on the wrong side of what God has called us to be and what he's called us to do. Now, this is the thing that may cause some Christians in various parts of the world and at various points to actually lose their lives. Because regardless of what she looks like in all of her outward appearance, here's the name that's written on her forehead. She is the, the, the queen of the harlots. And here's what she does. She is drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of the saints. In other words, she will seek to destroy through whatever means possible those that resist her enticements to render unto Caesar the things that belong to God. So the confusion for the people of God is when we seek ultimate and give ultimate worth and value, when we seek ultimacy itself, and when we ascribe ultimate worth and value to things that are temporal, whether it's governments, whether it's finances, whether it's physical security in a passing world, we are the people of God, protected and preserved by the Lamb. And he does allow us to cross paths with the beast and with the harlot. But we need to be grounded enough so that through our understanding of God's word and will, remember, we are nurtured in the wilderness, so that in the wilderness, we can identify those things that are in competition with the word and will of God. I'm going to go ahead and close there, and next week we'll pick up in uh, verse 7 and, and show even more the connection between the beast and the harlot 
as they carry out their agenda of rebellion against the things of God. For now, let's close in prayer. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for the reminder that you are with us and we are yours even as we go through different phases and different periods here on earth. We know that your will is sovereign over all things. And there are things that we will experience and see that are troubling to us, but we know that we are secure in Christ. Continue to build us up so that we are not deceived. We're not deceived about who you are. We are not deceived about what brings ultimate peace and what brings ultimate joy. We're not deceived by the things that make themselves out to be God-like, but are not. We pray that we would be grounded in the truth of who we are so that we would be faithful witnesses in the time and space in which you have placed us. We do thank you again for your grace in Christ. Strengthen us in it so that we can be sound witnesses and sing forth your praise and serve and offer service to you in spite of the things that are going on around us. We thank you for these things and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.